0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Um, today, I'm here with Emma Schoenberg, who is with the Climate Disobedience Center. Emma, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for asking.
0: So, yeah, so you just came back from a, a trip to Minnesota. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to um, talk a little bit about that? Tell people what you were doing there?
1: Yeah. I went out to Northern Minnesota, which is the unceded territory of the Ashinabe people, which is a language group of indigenous people that stretches up into what is now called Canada and then down into the Northern States of what's the so-called United States. Um, The people of that community have been fighting against a massive tar sands pipeline that's being built from the edges of Lake Superior and parts of the places where I was at was at, like the headwaters of the Mississippi. And so this pipeline is planned to be finished by early summer indigenous communities and locals have been fighting in the regulatory battle and also now into direct action for upwards, I think of about 10 years. It's been a really local battle. And in December, the company that owns this project called Enbridge, which is a massive, massive pipeline uh, company, started construction and so the call was kind of put out for activists across the country who could show up in indigenous solidarity to follow the leadership of those people and to really begin the work of trying to stop this the construction itself of this pipeline and so i was out there for about two or three weeks um i potted up with two other activists one of whom was my colleague jay at the climate disobedience center and we spent our time there just being in service to the needs of this fight that's been happening for the last decade and participating in direct action and also um, really just supporting the life of the campaign itself and making connections and building community.
0: That's awesome. So, um, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit in, in, um, in more detail about some of the things you were doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of really um strategic ways in which people can interfere with the process of a pipeline being built. And most typically that's direct action, which can look like a work stoppage or where you're actually chaining your body to something in order to prevent that construction to go forward. So often that can look like equipment, Um, that can look like getting into the trench of the pipeline itself as they're building it. Um, And these are actions that people take because every single minute that pipeline's getting built is the same exact time that the land is being ripped up and they're proceeding forward with this pretty scary project. Um, And so like the work that I was doing and the work that I do here, I'm a nonviolent direct action trainer. Um, I help build strategy for that. I have my own campaign against what's called critical infrastructure, which is pipelines and coal plants. And in that way, I kind of just showed up with the few connections that I had and did a lot of direct support work. Um, Mm. I was arrested at one point um, by being the direct support for a group of activists that had decided to shut down the entrance into a large machinery kind of location Mm. um, so that workers could not get to work. Um, And that direct support kind of looked like making sure they had sleeping bags because they were locked in to, apparatus that wouldn't allow them to be moved and um, really tending to their needs and making sure that everybody was safe. And I also rolled as a medic once or twice, because most actions that get planned, come with the escalators and medics and support people to make sure that the that the people involved in these actions stay safe. And also that the safety is really held by the community that's helping support the
0: action. So that's really awesome. Um, So what was your living situation like while you were there?
1: Um, I'm not going to talk about that one too much just because there has been so much um, fear of being targeted and I was working with people who get targeted by violent systems all the time mostly namely like indigenous people and people of color. Um, And so some of the details about what that experience was like is actually something I'm going to hold a little closer to the chest because um, there's some certain level of security that needs to be kept.
0: Oh, that's, that's interesting. That's something um, that I didn't really expect to hear. Um, But that, that makes sense. So just kind of very generally speaking, are there, you know, places that you can go where, you know, you're kind of supported, then you're able to support others from that base? Mm.
1: Well, something that I think is really important is that inside of a campaign that's trying to do something as large as shut down a massive pipeline, um, there has to be a variety of different tactics and a variety of different roles. And so at the same time that these direct actions are happening, there's also a defund line three campaign that just got launched, which is just asking people to stop Um, being patrons of banks that are helping to bankroll Line 3, for example. Mm -hmm. There are artists that are participating that are sending art to the actions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Places that people can look this up, by the way. I just feel the need because it's not. Yeah, go ahead, please. But it's like it's Honor the Earth is one of the websites, stopline3.org. And up there, there are ways that people can participate from across the map. Mm -hmm. And some of it looks like showing up in person, but so much of it also looks like building awareness, posting about it on social media, making art for the project. Um, and so I say this mostly because I think that there's like, I have a, I have a a spiel about like glamorizing arrest roles and making that seem like that's all that activism can be in a direct action campaign, but really nothing can happen unless the people that are risking arrest have the support crew, which have the people back at home, taking care of their cat, which (laughs) I did. And so there's like kind of an ecosystem quality to building a campaign that's resilient and can win some stuff.
0: That's interesting. Um, so can you talk at all about, um, any resistance that you guys met up in Minnesota? I know you, you mentioned run-ins with law enforcement. Um, can you get into any detail about that?
1: Well, I think one thing that is really important to point out is that most of the funding that is coming from the police to the police force that are reacting to these actions that are happening across country, I mean, across the counties of Minnesota, um, is funded by the corporation that's building the pipeline Enbridge, who I mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. So, part- to say the name
0: of that corporation again, just so that people are aware.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's Enbridge and
0: Bridge. Can you spell that?
1: E N, and then the word Bridge. B R I D G. And I just want to point out, like Enbridge, like has a participating. Ownership in many, many pipelines. It's one of those companies that operates in the shadows, that has mm-hmm. a seat at most of the environmental policy tables and the renewable energy networks. And um, you know, it's part of the ownership of Vermont Gas right here because I think you're in Burlington as well. We're both in the same city. I, I'm in
0: Essex Junction, but you're yeah. in
1: Essex Junction. So Vermont Gas is partially owned by Enbridge, oh, and didn't they built a pipeline. Um, so these 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 scenarios are deeply connected. And oftentimes there are those shadowy companies. It's very real. And sometimes just daylighting the participation of those companies is an important part of changing the way our fossil fuel economy is being structured at this time. Mm-hmm. And so Enbridge, in the case of Minnesota, um, this was a lesson that this corporation kind of took away from Standing Rock and the Dapple fight and other pipeline fights. And it's part of the way in which a, you know, Enbridge will approach like city government, I mean, state government and be like, hey, um, we're gonna provide you so many workers, like so many jobs for Minnesotan workers, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'll also foot the bill for any um, fees that might rack up for overtime for police officers if people happen to protest this. And so right up front, when they started the construction Enbridge, oh God, I wish I had this exact number like in my head, I think it's something like $300 $300 million right up front to the state of Minnesota to create a task force that could train specifically on how to break up pipeline protests Mm -hmm. and then have jurisdiction across county to be able to really crack down on protest. And so that was a calculation that Enbridge made after looking at what how much money and that's some of the tactical like strategic reasoning behind doing direct action is you're just increasing the overall cost of building a pipeline, because profit is the only thing that people care about not destruct destroying the planet or the last like indigenous wild rice patches in the (laughs) entire world or the sacred sites of indigenous people. But really if it gets too expensive, that's the thing that's gonna change their mind. And so direct action can often raise the cost of that. And that's what happened with DAPL in a lot of ways. I'm simplifying quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And also what we're trying to see in line three as well. And Enbridge predicted that and was able to pay right up front. And so there's almost more of a need to raise the cost. Uh-huh. And so they use this to fund the police force that is now arresting protesters, even though that police force is there to protect and serve communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are some of like the machinations of how corporate Um, entities, state entities, and police entities operate in conjunction with each other that serve to marginalize the voices of indigenous people and the kind of entities of this ecosystem that have no voices, which are the ecosystem itself. Like there's no one that's really, the land doesn't have a voice. And that might sound wild until you actually see a giant pipeline trench being carved into a beautiful piece of Minnesotan land. You're realizing wow that land really can't scream for itself so i'm suddenly really wanting to join in on the the chance of my mm-hmm. my
0: fellow peers so uh so what's the the situation now with line three is the situation still ongoing yeah mm-hmm.
1: this pipeline's being built faster than any in the world i feel like i could say wow um, and the fight is escalating right now um there are arrests happening. The call is out there for people to join. The call is out there to participate online and to raise awareness. And I know that this company is trying to push this pipeline forward as fast as possible. Every single site of building that I glanced at just driving through Minnesota um, had workers on it. It's it's just wild how much effort they're putting into wow. it. And so it's it's a very urgent fight. And also, I don't know if I mentioned like The amount of oil that's getting pushed through this pipeline is enough to really bring us to the very like over the brink of climate catastrophe if it gets burned. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is one of those fights that Biden is completely silent about. um, Currently, hopefully that will change Um, that could really make it. I mean, I don't want to say it's make it or break it because that brings us to a conversation of is climate change at a make it or break it point anymore. But it has a significance not just to the people of Minnesota, not just to the indigenous people who've lived there for 8000 years, literally, Um, but also for you and I over here on the East Coast or anybody who's living below sea level currently. um, These are the things that we can look back. We might look back on in 50 years and be like, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast.
0: No, you're you're allowed to say whatever you want.
1: Yeah, cool. So this is an oh fuck moment. Like we could look back on this and been like, shit, we really should have made a different decision.
0: Um, well, so yeah, yeah
1: I, that's the urgency of
0: I, I think we're going to look back on a lot of things and think that we should have made different decisions. Um, do you wanna talk about some other protests you've been involved in? just wanna make sure people get kind of the full scope of, uh, of what you've done.
1: Yeah, sure. What are the other process? I think that, um, I mean, I've had a kind of non traditional journey as an organizer and an activist over the last five to 10 years. I'm 28, if anyone's curious. Um, I was a student activist, you know, I was in high school and in college, and I was in college when the Occupy movement happened. and spent a significant amount of time um, participating in that. And now that's actually the 10-year anniversary this year. Um, And right now, the Where My Work centers is kind of both, you know, stretching a handout with a big stop. I guess people can't see it because it's a podcast. (laughs) You know, like the handout stretch that says, stop what you're doing. I refuse to consent. And also building cultures that can reach out a hand and now I'm stretching out my hand um, and say like, join us, or I refuse to cast you out of the human race. And that's where a lot of my work around nonviolence comes in. Uh-huh. And so I've participated in Black Lives Matter protests, um, encampments with that are run by houseless folks for housing justice. I'm part of mutual aid projects. I'm part of police accountability things. And a lot of it's just showing up with trying to hold that balance between saying, like I refuse to consent with the injustices that are happening and the hand stretch that says, how are we gonna build a better world? And so the protests themselves are moments in a much larger kind of philosophy of change-making. And I should just reference those two hands that I mentioned as Barbara Deming, who's a nonviolent activist from the, uh, I'd say the 1970s.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, what, what are the what's the attitude generally like at, at these protests? And I know that's, that's kind of a giant question, but you know, it seems like in certain cases, like at Occupy Wall Street, you're almost kind of set putting, setting up a little settlement
1: mm-hmm.
0: and building a little community mm-hmm. in a space. And like, what, what, what is that like? It's I know that's a huge question you can answer it at, at any, at any level.
1: Yeah. You uh, know, uh, it, it's a fantastic quest- question and you're noticing what makes encampments? That's what the tactic is called. Okay. Um, different, because they are kind of. There's an old anarchist phrase of like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's anarchism, communism, that said like we're building the new world in the shell of the old. I'm actually getting a tattoo on my body that represents how the fact that like we're always in tension between the world as it is and the world as it should be as activists and organizers. Mm-hmm. And. So that's what encampments can be, right? It's like, there are all of these elements of of an unhealed society, a society that hasn't been cared for and all of the reactions to being exposed to violent systems which are anger and despair and betrayal. And so you say, what's the attitude? And, And for me, I interpret it as like, what are the feelings that are present? And so very much a lot of my work is realizing that activism is about a healing process. Um, That sometimes it is the grief that has to come through or the anger that has to come through. And I think that there's a lot of different ways to participate in social movements. I think Occupy, for me at least as a 18, 19 year old, was very much about intellectualizing what was wrong with the world, like 99% versus the 1% and economic inequality is bad. And then it was the years of, I mean, I gotta thank a lot of the passionate black activists of the Black Lives Matter movement, which happened just a couple years later that were able to transform, especially from someone of my social identity from a place of intellectualizing what was wrong in the world to feeling it,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: meant actually leaning into some of that anger and some of that grief. And then sometimes there's a lot of joy and a lot of play because those are also versions of trying to build the new world, the one that we want together. And encampments are a type of direct action that just is such a microcosm of that. And I was into this summer, which was interesting after doing it at the first time, like uh, 10 years before. Uh-huh. So I don't know, if, like you just, that was a very simple question but it just opens up so much about what activism
0: can bring up for people. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, so I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about how you got in, into this because it, it's not a um, it's not a conventional thing to do, and this is you know you, this is your profession. Is, is that cor- correct in saying like your yeah. this is your career?
1: <laughs> I've had versions of activism that looked like a career. Okay, this one is less that way though. I do freelance as a consultant and as a trainer. And I do make some money that way. And then mm-hmm. the Climate Disobedience Center is a collective of activists that I receive a stipend from. So okay. there's definitely a gig economy quality to it. But it's, it's, I'm, and I live a very frugal lifestyle right now that it allows me to do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it is my calling. Maybe it's uh, the better way to do okay. it. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, yeah. So, was the, the Wall Street, um, Occupy Wall Street, your first like really big, protests that you'd been to so what was it like for you as a an 18 year old deciding you were going to go down from Vermont to you know New York City yeah and were were you with people that you knew or did you just decide you know I'm gonna go do this and I don't care who comes with me and you know screw everything else
1: yeah. A little bit of both. Okay. Uh, I didn't know the people very well. I kind of just hopped into somebody's car. Um, I remember that um, I was sitting in my dorm room. I lived in this eco hippie co-op as my sophomore year of college. I think I've just turned 19. Um, and I saw some of the first actions at OWS like unfold on social media, which is funny. Cause like, gosh, this could be a whole podcast episode of like, how social media has impacted a generation of organizers. Um, but I saw it unfold on Facebook, very simple, but I was like, wow, my kids are going to ask me where I was when this event happened. I think it was the like storming of the Brooklyn bridge or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, I have to be there or my kids are going to look at me with shame. And I'm like, (laughs) Wow, <laughs> like looking back on that, that's such a wild thought to have. And yeah, I hopped into a car and like the next like that evening was at OWS. We only stayed for, I think, one or two nights mm-hmm. It was gross. It was cold. We I didn't really like the people I was traveling with that much. Um, but there was also something that what felt like historical about it. And it was really coming back to Burlington because I was going to UVM as an undergrad at the time. And helping set up the encampment there that lasted for, I think, almost a month in City Hall Park that really started engaging me in not just the work of building a protest. But the thing I got really into was the nerdy process stuff, the consensus decision making models that people are trying to use. And I realized that I was really into some of the mechanisms of social change, like how groups organize each other.
0: That's interesting. So there was a, an Occupy Wall Street um, movement in Burlington at the same time as there was one in New York.
1: Oh yeah, they were. I, I did not know
0: that, um, Burlington wasn't even on my radar when I was, <laughs> that was 10 years ago. Actually I was, I lived, I grew up in New Jersey. So the right. Occupy wall street movement was very much in my radar. Um, Burlington was just kind of this weird town in Vermont that I didn't know that I would live in someday. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> yeah, fascinating.
0: Um. Yeah, you you mentioned you really were into these. Uh, I think you call them the nerdy like mechanisms behind these movements. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and what that does?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And this is definitely um, still an interest. <laughs> um, and it is like the level of being a geek about things. It's mm-hmm. how do we actually balance relationship trauma building deep connective relationship across difference that allows us to do challenging work together and how are the structures and processes that we use um, able to push back on some of the conditionings around white supremacy or differences in gender, um, our conditioning essentially that lives both, you know, out there in the world, but also inside of us that we replicate all the time. Um, And so small things like consensus, like just decision-making processes how does the decision get made? Who gets to make the decision? How does one get the at, a,
0: at like a political level, is that, is that what you're saying?
1: I mean, uh, yeah, good question. Okay. It's fractal, right? Because I live with seven other housemates right now in Burlington. And the founders of that house might actually have more decision-making implied power because they're the ones that hold the vision uh-huh. than someone who just moved in in May. Um, And that can expand outwards to our government systems, to our social movements. It all comes down to who gets to have the power, what the decision-making process is. And there are other structures as simple as like, how do we have a meeting? Who gets to access this? What are the boundaries of this? And these are the questions I ask because if we did absolutely nothing, then we'd just be replicating the same systems of harm that human beings have always kind of replicated upon each other.
0: Wow, uh, that was that was a great answer. Um, could you explain a little bit more what the Climate Disobedience Center is and and what it does?
1: Yeah, uh, maybe I'll figure it out as I tell you. Okay. <laughs> no, just um, so the Climate Disobedience Center started in 2015, um, a couple years before I joined, um, with four activists that wanted to really what they call push the edge of moral imagination with the type of direct action that they could do. And I'd say that there's like a deep spiritual connection for a lot of the founders of the Climate Disobedience Center to the transformation of social change work. Um, And so part of the expertise was to plan big actions or interesting actions that could then create cool Trial strategy, essentially using the trial process once you get arrested from an action to bring the necessity defense to the court of law, which is essentially self defense in the climate change context. Um, and how to really use a trial process to highlight in the court of law what's going on with climate change and there, one of the founders left a year or two later I joined. And part of our work now is creating a national network of direct action teams that is at the intersection of climate justice and racial healing that has a lot of intentional practices about how to do activism and how to be with each other in healing ways, um, especially across multiracial relationships. And then we also are the founders of a New England wide campaign to shut down the last large coal plant that's in this region, which is in Bow, New Hampshire. Um, But other than that, we serve a lot as like coaches and consultants and trainers. Um, And so a lot of the work in Minnesota, though I think that was more coming from like a place of just desperately wanting to participate there and like to lay some labor down in that area. But a lot of the places that we find are just like being with activists when they are building something new or they have an idea and they're they're facing you know, structural barriers, they're not being able to find their people, they don't have the training. And so a a lot of our work is being pollinators or I use the word coach sometimes or mentor, but that sounds a little more maybe patronizing than I want it to be, because I feel like they're just really reciprocal learning relationships of support. And
0: and it's, that's interesting. So you, you guys do a lot of different stuff.
1: Well, the structure of this, the Climate Disobedience Center was essentially, we don't pay eacho- we don't pay ourselves above a stipend, um, partially because we don't want to have to keep an organization alive by continually fundraising for it um, because our livelihoods depend on it. Um, we don't accept grants for that reason because we don't want to head into this thing where we're always trying to meet a grant deliverable as opposed to meeting the needs of people who reach out to us. Uh-huh. Um, we operate in what we call the gift economy, um, which is like a lot of faith that people will support our work through individual donations, which has worked out for the last five years. Um, yeah, and so in many ways, the Climate Disobedience Center is trying to structure something that leaves us outside of the realm of nonprofits um, and really leave us available to do anything and to allow us to do things that speak to us, that arise in the moment. So. You know, this summer I headed up to Maine to visit my colleague Jay, who I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. and stumbled upon a on a on that housing, that housing justice encampment that I mentioned and was able to stay up there for almost two weeks um, because the CDC's stipend allows me to go where I'm needed and where I can be of service. And that is a partially how I also talk about some of the privilege of being in this role, is uh-huh. that very much I see myself as um, a service provider um, in moments where people are holding really complex systems and really complex relationships.
0: So I, I wanted to circle back a little bit. And so you said that the um, climate disobedience center, had kind of made a very conscious choice to be, to not be a registered, not pro- not for profit organization. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, we're technically a collective um or independent contractors if you will um we have a fiscal sponsor thank you so much to the people who want to be fiscal sponsors out there in the world um our work is mostly around education and support and you know consulting to be really clear and less on the actual doing Um, and partially this is some of the decisions around this where um, it takes a lot of privilege and what often so many social justice nonprofits, which was one phase of my career, was in that realm. And that was very career oriented, is you know, they get they need to start making choices about what they can do with their programming based off of what they can fundraise off of. Okay. Um, and so the needs like every nonprofit has a board. We also have an advisory board because we believe in mentorship. Mm -hmm. But nonprofits have a board, they have fiscal responsibility attached to them to be able to meet people's salaries, provide them health care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so oftentimes it is the fiscal responsibility of that organization to keep itself alive. And so we make very intentional choices with our privilege, I'd say, um, to stay away from that dynamic because- it means that the choices start getting a little out of our hands about how free we are to do our work.
0: That's, that's interesting. So even within the realm of, of protests and of charity work, you guys are like the rebels.
1: (laughs) I like that interpretation. (laughs) Yay. Uh, Yeah. And, and, you know, like, there are a lot of freaking flaws to this. Like there's a lot of nuance, but these are the parts that I like about it that are a little shinier.
0: That's cool. Um, so what kind of like opportunities have presented themselves to you in doing this? Now, you, you just mentioned how you kind of stumbled upon that thing in Maine, you know, what kind of doors has this opened that you, you never really expected to, to open for you?
1: Oh, wow, what a question. Um, I've been with the Climate Disobedience Center for um, like, just over two years, a little bit over. Um, and it's just been a phenomenal experience of meeting some of the most thoughtful, knowledgeable, passionate, and diverse people, um, either through this network of direct action teams where we've gone to work with people like Kazu Haga, who just wrote a book called, um, Healing Resistance, um, We've gotten to meet people who are building primitive homesteads in the boonies, um, who are trying to build a new life without technology, you know, everything across the spectrum from people who are deep practitioners of nonviolence um, to people who are really trying to build new worlds. It also allows me to participate here in the Burlington community because it frees up my time. Um, and my expertise and my knowledge to help support the mutual aid organization that runs out of my house, which is called FUNOB Cops. So want, uh, in many ways, it allows me to just pursue justice in every avenue of my life, including living in an intentional
0: community. Mm-hmm. Do you wanna talk a little bit about the, um, I, I'm so, I forget, I already forget the name of, of what is being run out of your house. Um, do you wanna talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I love it so much. Um, and I'm very, very grateful to be in like a deep community of people who have so much commitment and passion for it. Um, but Food Not Bombs is the name of the organization typically, which is a very decentralized kind of, you know, food justice organization that started in the late, early 80s, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there are chapters all around the country. And the Food Not Bombs Burlington chapter was started by my now housemate, Sam, Um, the most recent iteration of it. I had met them and interacted with Foo Not Bombs during Occupy, but different chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been doing it like on Sundays, you know, when I was in town for the last couple of years. And then when the pandemic hit, we partnered with a Burlington mutual aid organization called BTV Cop Watch which primarily films cops as a way to bring more transparency to their interactions with community members. Um, But they also were meeting a lot of folks who are getting targeted by police, namely houseless folks, et cetera, et cetera, here in Burlington. And so that partnership actually started March 16th of last year. And so far we've been serving food and giving out gear and like critical like items to people every single day in downtown Burlington. I think we've missed one day. And so it's almost been a year. Um, And so my house has like basically become a food pantry in the last year. Um, We have 200 people volunteering in our meal prep program where they cook meals with ingredients that we provide them and then bring them back for us to serve at our daily food service.
0: Wow. And So where is all this happening?
1: Um, uh, Food Not Bombs is located at 32 Hungerford Terrace Maybe shouldn't say that right on the internet, but it's on Facebook so you can find it. Shouldn't mention that's also where I, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> no, just, uh, but uh, yeah, and we have a donation site there and um, our distribution happens right downtown at the Cherry Street parking garage every single day at 1 p.m. And um, we just expanded actually to doing a delivery service. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook if you're a Burlington resident. Yeah.
0: Wow, so you, you really have a hand in a lot of different organizations, and you're doing a ton of different stuff. Um, how has this kind of impacted your personal life? You know, I'm sure this is a ton of sacrifice, and I'm sure you get this question a lot based on how you reacted. Um, but, yeah, why, why, why don't you comment on that?
1: <laughs> um. And no one ever asks me this question. Um, I mean, nerdy semantic side tangent, but it's something I have is about the word sacrifice is so Uh interesting, and I like to think about like the versions of sacrifice that are taught to us, like the stories and cultures of it. One of which is very rooted in a violent kind of paradigm where to sacrifice is to like lose something. Um, or to take something away from you or to like be missing. Um, But in the very like root of the word sacrifice, it means to make sacred. Um, Talking to some of the indigenous folks out at line three, thinking about how sacrifice plays into a lot of the spiritual rituals for native folks. Um, And so there is this piece of like, I'm trying to live in that world of like the sacrifice is the gift. Like this is a joy. This means I get to live fully within my integrity and fully within my values. I've screwed together a way to actually survive off it and lean into mutual aid and reciprocity. That's mm-hmm. more separated from capitalist systems than almost anyone else I know. I mean, it's just like a huge piece of gratitude and gratitude is what transforms it into something sacred. Um, and so i just like, that's my little side tangent, but I also haven't dated anybody in years. And, you know, I'm really not fun at parties cause I'll just talk about violence or climate change. Um, and yeah, also like the fact is, is like, it's, you know a lot of people want simple. And, and so sometimes it's really hard to like feel not seen or to feel lonely when I am so fully immersed in the complexity of trying to move through social change.
0: Mm-hmm. So you but you see it. This is these are all your choices. This is how you've chosen to live your life.
1: Well, choice and is privilege. So what was that? Sorry. You know, choice is the base unit of of privilege, of power uh-huh. in society. Like I get to choose to tell people when I'm queer. And because, you know, your podcast members can't see me, but I don't look it. I haven't made that choice to cut my hair a certain way. So there is a little undercut. It's a little too hard to see, but um, and I get to choose to tell people when I'm Jewish because I'm white, you know. And so, like, those are the choices that inform my social identity, my privileges in this society. And so, yeah, like that is the thing. Is like I have made these choices, and of course, I'm grateful that I've even had the opportunity to make these choices. Uh-huh. Um, so it's I just really like that you used that word and made that connection. Well,
0: thank you. Um, so. I guess I I really want to ask a little bit more. Um, You know, in a country and a culture that's so divided, and you know, I I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations about you, but you seem to be on one end of a political social spectrum, and there's a lot of people on the other end, and it's you know, one of the things that is really kind of a focus of mine with this project is to get people to understand you know understand each other better mm. and communicate better so what what would you say to people that you know are uh, i i'm i'm think, trying to think of the right word maybe more just more conservative in their mindset more um You know things like pro law enforcement, um, anti protest. You know what? What would you say to them to try to better understand what where you're coming from? Oh,
1: oh, what a question! (laughs) Yeah, so much of this does boil down to how do we build relationships across difference. Mm -hmm. It's like one of the simplest questions we can ask about how to transform society, and so I think about that with the like you know, people of color that I work with, right? There's a huge gap of difference there. And I think about that too, from people who share a different worldview than I do. That's how deep this goes. This is worldview stuff. This isn't opinion. This isn't even conditioning or culture. It's like straight up, you know, I might, this, this is an example someone used to once describe a worldview to me, like I might look or an indigenous person, for example, might look at a mountain and say that mountain is my grandmother and another person, not from that identity might say that mountain is a mountain. And that is the difference of worldview that doesn't invalidate each other, um, unless they're in a power struggle over resources or, um, yeah, mostly resources. Uh Um, and so, I do that, this is like brings back that Barbara Deming two hands kind of idea that there's a hand outstretched that says stop and I refuse to consent. And there's a hand that is like reaching out to people to say, you can grab this if you want it. Um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of places where I hold my integrity and my values and I believe that I am right. You can't, podcast members can't see this but they're quotes <laughs> with my fingers. Um, there is no right and wrong when our worldviews are this complex and so nuanced by thousands of years of cultural conditioning. Um, you know, I think one of our problems with conflict, especially in a white supremacist context, is that it's usually a pitch to battle, a war over winners and losers and right and wrong and takers and leavers. Um, and in many ways, like breaking down those binaries to... Not maybe just like, we're all human, which is a little bit, you know, cheesy, but really to a place of understanding that the complexity is outside of our control. So maybe I'm not even saying things to people <laughs> who come from a different conservative worldview than me. Maybe I'm listening in that context. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm aware that like my role is over here and there are people in my networks or in my life or in this state of Vermont that I love so much, that has so many problems that are actually doing that reaching across the aisle work. And so this also comes from an idea of like, my way, isn't the right way. It's just the way that's right for me. Hmm. Um, and really trying to hold that even when it starts to slip away. I don't know if that made any sense.
0: I I, I mean, it, it made a lot of sense. I think, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that, you know, people just lose sight of is we all generally want the same things. We just kind of very much disagree on how to get there most of the time. And we kind of let that totally, t- that difference of opinions totally take over the conversation.
1: Yeah. And what does, you know, where does that difference of opinion come
0: from? You know, I think a lot of it is just communities we're raised in. I think. I, th- I really think people have a really, really strong confirmation bias, and I'm probably not saying anything um, too revolutionary there, but um, I-, I think we very much conflate our ideas with our identity. Mm. Um, and anytime our ideas are attacked, you know that's that is an attack on me as a human being and my existence, and I just can't stand for that. Yeah. So you know, I I think people just need to accept the fact that oftentimes they're going to be wrong, uh, to some degree or another on things, and I mean really no one's no one's ever like one hundred percent right in, in in an opinion. Right. So you know, just having that flexibility to, you know understand where you might be able to learn from others but you know also being true to yourself and your own values
1: Mm -hmm. and then comes in an analysis of power because you spoke to that so eloquently right that piece of like the um, confirmation bias but also the identity versus the opinion that you're speaking to and for a long time like think about some of the religious wars we saw thousands of years ago right? People's identity was their belief in a certain way. Like, is destiny preconceived or is it not? You know, does God, is does free will exist? People would go to battle and die over that. For thousands of years, people killed anybody who didn't share the same opinion as them. My Jewish ancestry has that own story to it. And that's to retain power. And so there's the you know, like kind of power free analysis that is like, we are all different. We have many complexities that inform our worldview. Um, No one is completely right. No one's completely wrong. And nobody's tactic is the best tactic and nobody's way forward is the right way forward. And I fully believe that and hold at the exact same time with a power analysis that um, the same people have stayed in power you know, white folks, essentially yes. men for so long that there's obviously some construct in place that has allowed that to keep happening. And it's mostly violence mm-hmm. and the fact that anybody who disagreed with that power construct and didn't have the like, well, we're all just human, you know, was killed. Yeah. Um, that's like the reality of it. And that's where the power analysis starts coming in. And then I get to get like, you know especially if I've had a beer or something, I'm like, guess what, I'm I'm right. I'm, <laughs> I know justice, I'm the end, I'll be all of that. And, you know, I also can kind of relax into that sometimes, but it feels like an indulgence for
0: sure. So um, I, I wanted to change gears a little bit back into some of your experiences and um, maybe talk a little bit about your experience with, um, so you were at Black Lives Matter protest this summer?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Burlington, which I guess wasn't exactly black lives matter. though I participated in some other ones in other places.
0: Okay. Can you, uh, share what places?
1: Um, yeah, a little bit like up in Maine, um, the same time that I was up there was the same time things were evolving and I did a lot of, um, deescalation trainings, which is something that I love to do for protests that were happening all around the country. And so I participated in that by getting on Zoom mostly and training up sometimes those teams of like all white people, like the local search showing up for racial justice chapter, which is all white people, specifically on how to put white bodies um, in the way of harm and consenting black people. That was often a dynamic that I was helping hold in wow. protest moments. Okay. And then the stuff in Burlington was similar.
0: Okay. So yeah, I kind of wanted to ask just because the black lives matter movement was so i I don't know i don't know if politicized is the right word but it you know it kind of grabbed everyone's attention for you know a, a really a matter of weeks this summer and you know people on from all different political perspectives had their opinions on it and so you know, and there were a lot of different facets to the protests. Um, and, you know, while I think the, the rioting was very much a small minority of people that weren't really asso- that associated, it was still there and it was still talked about. So, you know, I, I guess I, I kind of wanted to get your take, you know, coming from within the movement as to what you saw
1: and only tangentially within the movement, right? Because I'm oh. a white person in Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And so like, just so, like, even when I'm talking about line three at the beginning of the show, when I'm talking about it, it's only through the lens of my own perspective. And it's not authentic to the actual fights that are happening there because I'm not of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just like, that's a little disclaimer, I think is the word for it. More like just a real honest, like answer that I can't. I can only like show up in this identity in this lens, mm-hmm. um, and so you're kind of speaking to—I don't know—that kind of conflict. I guess like it's in a it's a emotional and spiritual and mental and embodied conflict that is being created by uprisings, by police abolition movements, by people taking to the streets. Um. I think the best place to look is back to Martin Luther King, who you probably know has been incredibly whitewashed down to his least radical self. Um, But he wrote, and I think it's a letter from a Birmingham jail, pretty sure. And if you haven't read that, highly suggest, highly suggest, very applicable to life right now.
0: I read it Um, many years ago. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. And this is all your podcast listeners. But um, this idea that direct action protest movements, aren't there to create conflict, which I think was like a bit about what your um, question is getting at, but what they do is they serve to reveal the conflict that is already there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that conflict people have been, black people have been murdered at astounding rates by police for decades. and so in many ways, what this was, was a revealing of tension of conflict that because of uh, marginalization, because oppression and violence happen in the shadows and the edges of society, it was actually daylighting. It was um, saying, look at what's happening and has been happening. And it wasn't just George Floyd, but it was the many, many, many names that have hap- that come before him and the names that were never recorded and that we'll never know. Um, and so I think that's really it. And that's what I go back to every single time is that it's a re- it's a revelation is another word <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: um, that looks like really showing how much harm, how much, again, grief, anger, pain, betrayal um, that is present. And also just how much people are willing to risk, to put on the line in order to see things changed it kind of opens it up. And that's my hope with direct action and protest instead of shutting shit down, it actually serves to open things up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's incredibly important when so much gets hidden, um, when so much is invisible. Um, And so, you know, simply, sometimes the most important role that protest makes is changing private struggle into public outrage. Mm -hmm. And Martin Luther King spoke to that all the time. And his own idea of direct action was to achieve what he called positive peace, right? The idea that negative peace is when things are tranquil and quiet and they look nice, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't actually see the tension that's just underneath the surface. And so sometimes what's peaceful is actually the thing that looks like a riot that is an uprising because it's positive peace, it's saying, no, like we will not go back into the shadows. Um, and so I very much saw those as peaceful protests. Um, mm. Even though now we're seeing, by the way, just like bills, legislative bills getting put into state houses all across the country that are starting to limit people's access to free speech. They're, we're seeing unlawful assembly charges more and more. Um, And that's part of the crackdown from people who are actually revealing doing that truth-telling work. Uh And also that's what Gandhi called, like, right? Like truth force, Satyagraha, that's what Gandhi considered direct action as well. And so that kind of piece of truth-telling about the systems around us is the role that protest plays in social change work.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to to unpack there.
1: I have a six-hour training about this topic. Okay.
0: <laughs> no. um, can, I, can I ask you a political question? Sure. Um, how do you feel about defunding or abolishing the police? <laughs> and you, you don't have to answer if you don't want to.
1: No, I mean, that's the whole point. Like, this is the truth-telling, the little risks and vulnerabilities to my own self that is involved in... in Kind of that transformation from private to public, right? It's like I will say, I am a police abolitionist. I maybe not I won't say it to my grandmother um, because, you know, how many conversations do I have left with her? But, you know, I am a police abolitionist. I don't know if I totally like saying that as my identity, but it is a huge part because it gets to humanity, especially white Western society's obsession with punishment. Like beneath just all of the abuses and all of the statistics and all of the weird crap where like police come from a history of, you know, private property ownership, which at one point kind of recently included people. There's a lot about policing that makes no freaking sense. That is there from some very weird union work and shifts in policy. But also, like, underneath that, structurally, culturally, is this obsession that somehow people heal by being punished Uh and that's the entire carceral system not just police but the criminal justice system as well
0: yeah um one of the places i think the black life black Black lives matter movement really uh, ran into trouble probably isn't the right word but Upset a lot of people, I think is you know it started out as kind of one message, and then it it seemed to me like defund the police and abolish the police kind of implanted itself within that movement and became a whole separate thing, and so you know now you know you the idea that Black Lives Matter, you know I I think most i i hope most people (laughs) would agree with that notion but you know i'm sure that there are a lot of people that don't agree with the abolishment or defunding of police and so do, do you think the central message of black lives matter was damaged at all by kind of the inclusion of the defund the police rhetoric or do you think you know again we're just this is not we are bringing the underlying structures to light. Mm -hmm. And part of that issue is police and it can't not, it can't be separated from black lives matter.
1: Mm. Well, I am not qualified to Ah. answer. (laughs) I would be curious what like Alicia Garza would say, or Patrice colors, but like, um, Yeah, like let's, we could think about it tactically or strategically, and then I like would have to ask what are the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement, that's assuming that it is somehow centralized Uh to be able to concisely speak to those goals, which might not even be the most strategic move in its own right, or even possible, because Black people are not a monolith that all agree with one another just because they're Black. I mean, I can just look at history and be like, well, you know, Ferguson, Missouri was based around a police killing of a young black man, Mm -hmm. Michael Brown. And so it is kind of, and that birthed so much of the Black Lives Matter movement as we currently know it. So it's always been a part of its story. Um, And I'd say that it's the groundwork, I don't know, I don't wanna say this too confidently, but I might suspect that it's the groundwork of the Black Lives Matter movement, just being able to polarize effectively, strategically polarized, right? That's what they did um, in that moment is they say Black Lives Matter or they don't, you know? And that was a way to actually start shifting people into more allyship or less allyship in a more clear way. This is often called the spectrum of allies and it's a module that people use in strategy planning. Um, so to kind of get to that, that groundwork, that cultural groundwork, strategic groundwork, the organizers that have been mentored by Black Lives Matter participants, the young Black folks that I'm seeing just throw their entire hearts into the police abolition movement, et cetera, et cetera. I think those are deeply related and in the same kind of movement ecology, if you will, or ecosystem or social fabric, whatever analogy you want to put to it they are deeply connected in my kind of limited view and i also think that there is room for both defund and abolish and i don't give a shit about the police inside the black lives matter movement Mm -hmm. because it is a movement not a campaign that's the Uh difference so there are multiple campaigns within that movement
0: but i i think what gets difficult is people hear the message defund the police and then that gets attached to black lives matter. And that's attached to all of black lives matter. Yeah. And you know, it's not easy for people to agree with one part of movement and disagree with another. I think, you know, people look at these things as it's, it's very natural for people to look at these things as like overall entities that they either agree with or disagree with. Mm. So I, I guess that my suspicion would be that it turned a lot of people away from the movement, and that that is my assessment based on absolutely zero evidence, just my intuition, um. And I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what I was trying to get at here. I guess what, what, what my. What I'm, I was kind of curious about in the first place before we kind of spun off into this whole thing is like what kind of happens when you have these multiple messages of a movement and, you know, they don't necessarily agree with each other and kind of what happens when things get muddy like that, which is obviously very complicated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've just been... Um, we're just, we're just two white people that have been talking about Black Lives Matter for (laughs) the last half an hour. Um,
1: which they wouldn't have been, you know, five or six years ago. Yeah. Um, oh man, you're just really like staring the complexity, the muddiness in the face. And I think that that is almost a version of trauma that organizers and activists and people have that often, like, And for white people, I think that often manifests as fragility. That term white fragility is Mm -hmm. really how much pressure can you apply to someone before they break? And so that complexity is often the form that that pressure takes that causes white people to be fragile. Not saying that you're being fragile or I'm being fragile in this moment. I don't have the data to support that. Mm -hmm. But it's just one of the ways in which that complexity, sometimes called intersectionality, you know, just the very complexity of our own traumas and our own histories and our own differences across race and gender, all of those kind of add to how difficult it is to put words to the vast differences that exist within one movement. Mm -hmm. Um, What works for one might not work for another. I'm not trying to hand wave just saying, oh, it's really complex, you know, but there's something there that, that I think is Um, strategic and important and also healing in being able to hold multiple things being true at the exact same time, which is really hard under a very binary system of good and evil and right and wrong. And so holding that defund the police in a and abolish the police can exist in the same movement is a part of our own internal work of being able to hold complexity because that's a critical tool to be applied in transformative society. And so, yes, I think probably it, it made a lot of people leave the movement. Um, were they maybe the right people to leave the movement? I have no freaking clue, maybe. Were there other issues of access? Were there other stories of past trauma around the police, around family, around culture that like informed how people felt about the justice system? Definitely. Um, and so just trying to hold it in the binary of is it a good idea or a bad idea is, again, just trying to fall back into that one thing can be true at one time of... Yes, this is the right way, and no, this is the wrong way, which doesn't honor the fact that we are very different people on these planets. On this planet, <laughs>
0: planet. for now, this planet. Maybe, yeah. maybe we'll we'll get to other planets, and then we can we then we can really start war on an interplanetary scale.
1: Which I heard on the radio was like, "There's a planetary protection agency on, in NASA."
0: I don't know what that means.
1: <laughs> yeah, because they just landed on Mars apparently this yes. week, which. I didn't even clock, you know. I was just like, whatever.
0: Well, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, I yeah. didn't, I didn't know it was happening until my friend said he was going to stream it, and uh, it, it, it was funny. It was just a bunch of really smart nerds in a room, just kind of looking at a computer, <laughs> saying it's now it's ten miles away, now it's five miles away, and then all of a sudden they all just get up and start clapping and screaming. It was, it was pretty cool. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: anyway, yeah that's that's on a totally different um but vein it
1: could be rich you're talking are about we colonizing mars can you colonize something that has no life on it anyway this is why I'm not fun at parties Michael <laughs> <laughs> I'm bad at small talk mm-hmm.
0: small talk is overrated like hmm. I feel like we should go like the first thing you should ask someone is like what is your life's identity oh like, wow forget forget these like tiny superficial relationships we have and just like yeah. jump into like understanding people on a very deep level
1: you'd make a great
0: organizer but then again like talking about the weather is fun like uh-huh. every, everyone has the same weather it's nice yeah. so <laughs> I, I don't know how we got to that
1: no i mean it's real like so much of the work that we actually have to do is just learning how to be vulnerable with one another.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Like, because that's the thing is like, we've talked a lot about that grief and the rage and the anger and the sadness and the betrayal, which I think is the same order I've said that list every time because those emotions are so present, but there's also the vulnerability of being in those emotions is valuable. The fact that we're often not allowed to be angry, we're not allowed to grieve in public, that's radical in its own right for breaking the rules about like social convention. It's, you know, why a lot of whiteness is about being emotionally repressed. I don't know if you've noticed, Um, but also there's the reverse of it too the healing side of it, that our vulnerability can look like saying, I love you. Like that's the most vulnerable thing we can ever do sometimes with another person. And so Making movements that come from a place of love is often also making movements that come from a place of vulnerability, which is what we're avoiding in small talk, which is like, I just took your like, you know, kind of casual side comment and evolved into my very thesis around how I show up in the world is with this, what I've called fierce vulnerability. You know, this idea that's the two hands, the one that says stop and the one that's outstretched. Um, that fierce vulnerability, that's also nonviolence, right? The ability to be um, brave um, and also to be tender and to be those two things at once is how you talk to people across difference. It's how you start moving into a place of like all my actions coming from a place of love instead of maybe the reaction that is anger. And one of my mentors always says like, anger is just a reaction and underneath that is quite often a deeper emotion that can look like sadness or grief, but it can also look like love, Mm -hmm. right? We we see love expresses anger all the time. Um, So yeah, anyway, that was quite (laughs) deep.
0: (laughs) I really like that term. You used fierce vulnerability. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to use that.
1: Yeah. That's actually one of the, pillars of the yet to be named network which is this network it's that's a really shitty name that obviously is just kind of stuck the yet to be named network but that's the network of direct action teams that does racial healing work and climate justice and um, fierce vulnerability is a really huge part of my life Um, and I teach workshops on fierce vulnerability Mm -hmm. as well which is partly about doing trauma healing work about doing truth-telling work and direct action work that allows us to engage at a really deep, I'm going to say spiritual level, which is not like the word that lands for people a lot for, but for me it's that intangible quality of like the being of love or the, the one that can transform into better community.
0: That's really interesting. Um, uh, another question that I had is, um, In a world where so many things need fixing and need attention, how does an activist focus their energy into one or two or three causes enough to be impactful there, while also feeling like you're not turning away from all of these other people that need help?
1: God damn I've, I've cried about like this question has made me cry many times in my it's, life as an
0: activist it's a very very difficult question
1: yeah I think oh man I, but I think a lot of the stuff I've probably said on this podcast could be considered like a little controversial but this is one of them too is like I do think that there needs to be um this is why like when we talk about career, I was like, I think it's my calling or, you know, that sense that like transforms the sacrifice into feeling like a gift. Um, That's when you're acting in your integrity. That's when you're showing up with people that you love or your friends um, or your community members. There are other factors beyond just the measurable impacts. And one of the biggest pains Really, is that like sometimes you cannot measure the impact that you're having? Uh-huh. You know, I've spoken in front of crowds of 5,000 people before, and what if like someone in that crowd went off and became the most badass activist in the world because they heard my speech? This is like the most grand, you know, grand version <laughs> of this fantasy, but we cannot measure what our impacts are, especially in a dominant society that demands that everything has to be weighed and measured in order for it to count. But we can't kind of access those intangible unknowns and attach a value to them, because particularly because we can't attach a monetary value to them or political value to them. We don't know what our impacts are. And so I think that is the pain that drives people. And so really being in that place of not knowing, and this is where faith again, I've used religious language. I'm not the religious, but I love it. Faith, spirit, that's where these kind of concepts come in. Trust is another word for it, that the impacts will matter, that they will actually be felt in at least like our own lifetimes, if not the next, that the work that I am doing is good and fulfilling. That's a—that's an act of faith, um, which I'm going to quote Jane the Virgin, which is one of my favorite TV shows here, but the Abolita in that, in that TV show says faith is not the absence of doubt, but believing in spite of it. I believe that's the quote, and I love that. It's like, Mm I, every activist I work with, and I work with a lot of younger activists now, um, struggle with doubt, and it is one of the human demons that plagues everybody, and I think it's very much the inner oppressor, or the inner critic, that starts to like, weave in the doubt which leads to shame that's a whole other thing but um how does one pick i think it's like what feels good where are your friends like who is going to be your people like what do you feel like you can win do you even need to win in order for it to feel like it's good um there's a lot of losing in activism so i don't suggest trying to hang your hat on winning something because you just don't Um, (laughs) unless you get to decide what the win is, right? Like Uh you might lose the policy battle, but you might win a huge community of people that are engaged in your issue or your next, you know, hot sweetie of the moment or whatever it is, you can decide what your win is. And, um, so yeah, if there's pleasure, um, if you feel fulfilled, if you feel called, and this is why getting into our bodies is so important and tapping into faith or spirit or whatever you want to call it is, it's just like, it does this meet my integrity? Does it make me feel seen? Um, those are valuable questions to ask. And then, cause it doesn't matter. We don't fucking know what's gonna fix climate change. We don't know what's gonna abolish the police or replace the police or whatever it is. So like a lot of young folks and or newer organizers and activists are like, do electoral work because it's the only way like you gotta elect Bernie Sanders as president you know and like the anarchists are like no don't acknowledge the state and blah 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 and they're all trying to figure out which tactic is right but we don't fucking know Uh so like do the one that speaks to you and to the way that fits your worldview and the one where like I don't know the hottest people are if that's like what's gonna be the thing that brings you in kind of a joke kind of not
0: okay all right um yeah, that, that, that was a great answer. Um, uh, if you could fix one thing, what what would you fix?
1: No one's ever asked me that before. Oh God. Um, I think that's so much of what these systems of violence have done for thousands of years. Is removed people's ability to trust each other mm-hmm. um, and so if I could fix one thing just one it would be the mending of some of that trust um, to make trust easier to access um, which means undoing our whole pent up shit around being vulnerable or for asking for help, which means undoing white supremacy. So, <laughs> by picking trust, I actually get all
0: of them. Um, yeah, all- I, was, uh, I was about to say that. That's actually a really great answer. I think most people, myself included, would say something like very tangible, like, you know, end world hunger or give everyone access to clean water. And, like, you know, th- those are great things. But you know, it's it's a little bit like that um old story, like teach, give a man a fish, he'll eat for one day. Or if you teach him to fish, he'll eat for and, until he uh, gets until he catches all the fish in the ocean. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I instead of like a tangible thing, you get, you, you know, you, you gave us a tool
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is even more valuable, I think.
1: Yeah. And just working, like, not, you don't have to identify as an activist, right? To start mm-hmm. asking the question, what is trust building in this moment? Um, what is going to, like, you know, access my little being of love that lives inside me? That's another question, but probably doesn't apply to everybody listening.
0: <laughs> I, I, may, maybe someone. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, so how do, what's a, what's a way for someone to be fiercely vulnerable in their life or to practice being fiercely vulnerable or to be more trust, trusting.
1: Oh man. Um, I mean, I, you know, sometimes it literally is just like turning to your friend and saying, I love you, Mm. which um, feels so cheesy, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's really powerful. Um, I think that sometimes it looks like telling the truth, um, and it's like one of the truths, right? Cause we've already talked about how there is multiple truths out there. Um, but that revealing work that like pointing out when something's happening, that transformation from something private to public, even if that private thing is something happening inside of you being more it like the fierceness is being able to tell the truth about it. And the vulnerability is being open to like letting it affect you and being attached to it. Um, Being passionate was like, you know, not the greatest um, selling point, I think, for my personality because it, you know, comes across as intense sometimes. Um, So there's a vulnerability in being passionate and there's a vulnerability because it risks failure and failure is so scary in a dominant society. Um, And so, yeah, I think that like taking those little risks, it's all about risk. It's all about fucking risk. What am I talking about uh-huh. I to, to my forehead? You know, really, it's just like oh, your risks can look like risking arrest. They can look like um, starting to process your own racial identity and social position, even just alone with your own computer and not even with anyone else. It can look like asking for help oh my gosh, any, like, you know, all these different versions of being fiercely vulnerable that look like truth-telling, trust-building, um, connecting, and taking risk, yeah.
0: So, yeah. I think you gave people a lot of things to work on there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the classic, like, Example that I sometimes use about like fierce vulnerabilities, you know, Tank Man, the guy in Tiananmen Square who stood in front of a tank with his grocery bags and did a weird little dance. Like, highly suggest go look up. I didn't
0: know he did a dance.
1: Yeah, there's, it's maybe it's not a dance, he's like sidestepping. I always just thought that was so awkward and so strange that this person was just walking home with their grocery bags and decided to stand in front of some tanks. And so that's the very dramatic version, but you know. Mm Whatever your version of standing in front of tanks is,
0: I think I, I would add um, the Buddhist monks that set themselves on fire in the early days of the Vietnam War. I think that was more in protest to like the Vietnamese government. Mm-hmm. I, I I could be completely botching this, uh, and I, I I'm not even I, I'm not even going to try to remember all the like the intensely like religious political um conflict that was going on Mm -hmm. in vietnam that didn't even have anything to do with america um until america got involved any anyway um that that's the most badass form of protest i've ever seen is someone literally setting themselves on fire so you know you you don't need to do that (laughs) it's it's okay to not set yourself on fire
1: metaphorically uh, set yourself yes, on that, fire that, that sure
0: person you know. was was fiercely vulnerable
1: yeah and it, we remember it decades later yeah. you know both of these examples and that's the impact that they never knew about their actions I mean you know self-immolation which is that setting yourself on fire was also what sparked the Arab Spring which then became Occupy Wall Street which then created this organizer on this podcast and so again like not being able to trace or measure what our impacts are though self-immolation definitely is impactful <laughs> but oh man if it's not it's sad someone self-immolated recently actually now that i think about it right. anyway that's a, probably like a just a dark tangent for okay past 9 p.m and I, i don't know anywhere this podcast though
0: Okay um so do you want to uh, just quickly review all the various um projects that you're in and kind of how people can be involved if they if they'd like to be
1: Yeah I mean donate check out watch the documentary create art do whatever you can to spread the word about line 3 and that's wwwstopline 3 org. Um, You can also go to honortheearth.org to find more information out about that, um, because it's an important fight and it is a very urgent one happening right now. Um, You can learn a lot about police abolition through the Black Lives Matter movement. There's a lot of information out there. And mostly I would just start checking in with your local town, especially if you're here in the Chittenden County area to find out what activists are doing. It doesn't mean you have to participate. It doesn't mean you have to agree, but just coming from a place of curiosity is a great place to start being a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more open to hearing where other people are coming from. Um, And then Food Not Bombs is an organization with chapters all across the country. Food Not Cops, the collaborative project is here in downtown Burlington every day at 1 p.m. Facebook, Instagram, that's a mutual aid project that mostly brings care and items and food and um, companionship to our neighbors, especially during the time of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, Check out if you're in the Burlington area, um, also like the Battery Park Movement and their work. Um, They're one of the organizations here in town that's been doing amazing work to change things at the city level in terms of what a safe community looks like. There are probably a lot more I can mention. Awesome.
0: And then, um, so a lot of my listeners are my high school friends who live predominantly in, um, in North central Jersey, although that that's a whole debate that I, 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 am not going to get into, you know, what is central Jersey, but so do you, do you, are you involved with any organizations in that area, maybe in New York city, or are you tangentially, um, just aware of them that you might want to recommend?
1: i know nothing in new jersey that's okay
0: that's that's fine
1: my my parents are from new jersey i i know yeah
0: yeah um all right emma this has been awesome you're doing so much cool awesome stuff and uh, i just want to encourage you to keep doing it
1: thank you and
0: um you know if you have any more messages to spread i would definitely love to have you back on
1: great yeah and um Thank you for your insightful questions and probably your own little risk of getting me on this call, having no idea. Um,
0: <laughs> well, that, that's that's the fun part of this is, um, you know, you just you get to to know about someone, and learn a lot about them in a, in a very awkward way. Um, you know, it's I've, I've always said just telling people that you're going to record a conversation with them and put the, put it on the Internet really gets people to open up in ways that um, they don't open up in, in normal circumstances. So it's, it's a really cool way to, to get to know someone.
1: Yeah. And you know, so many of us are just trying to be seen. Yeah. Um, so thanks for giving that to me. This was quite fun. I don't get to talk about myself that much.
0: I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. And uh, yeah, hopefully run into you here in town.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks Michael.
0: Okay. Okay, bye everyone.
1: Bye.